News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. In light of what's happened in the last 24 hours in Texas, you just know the discussion about gun control is going to be front and center in the United States. Let me tell you, though, about the law in Texas, actually. It was recently changed. And essentially, it now says anyone over the age of 18 can buy a gun without a background check. As of September uh, 2021, so just, you know, six, seven months ago, Texas law no longer requires people to have a license to carry a handgun in a public place. Uh, There are a few exceptions to that, including schools and some colleges. But at that point, who's going to check Right? Who's going to check if you don't need the license to carry in most public places? So, after widening that, they are now grappling with this issue today. And that is you've got 19 children who've been killed, two adults at a school, an elementary school in Texas. Now, we'll have more on that in a moment. But there's also been a lot of focus on politicians, of course, like Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who, by the way, in just a few days, is scheduled to speak at an NRA conference that is going on. Now, I don't know if that's going to go ahead and if he's going to keep speaking there, but obviously there's a lot of focus on him and what he thinks should happen in this situation. So just this morning, in fact, in the last half hour, the Texas senator was asked about the potential for stricter gun control laws to prevent school shootings in particular. But here is what the senator proposed instead. We know from past experience that the most effective tool for keeping kids safe uh, is armed law enforcement on the campus. You know, inevitably, when there's a murder of this kind, uh, you see politicians try to politicize it. Uh, You see Democrats and a lot of folks in the media whose immediate solution is to try to restrict uh, the constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens. That doesn't work. Right. But do you want to send your child to school with armed guards to protect them? And we're talking elementary school here. And what they're not mentioning is that there were armed law enforcement officers at the scene of that shooting yesterday. In fact, they were there as the school shooter made his way into the school. They were exchanging gunfire with him as that happened, and it did not prevent this from happening. So it's a frustrating situation all around. And we should mention as well, like U.S. President Joe Biden spoke yesterday about the tragic event, and here's what he had to say. Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to deal with it and stand up to the lobbies? It's time to turn this pain into action. But will that actually happen? Well, for more on all of this, we're joined now by our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. I I barely remember Columbine, but I I did think at the time, oh, wow, this is going to change everything. And then uh, so many more school shootings happened. There was obviously Sandy Hook, Parkland. Buffalo was just so recent. And Gordon made the point earlier on our show today that um, school shootings are a reality. They are such a reality that my friends who live across the states, California, Arizona, Oklahoma, Texas, actually, all their kids go through regular school shooter drills. Oh. Uh, so their kids that are in elementary school in grades one and two uh, learn what to do if a shooter 
arrives on the scene. And uh, yeah, a lot of Republicans are talking right now about how there needs to be more uh, armed law enforcement on the scene, uh, that maybe there need to be security guards at schools and things like this. But uh, not only was that the case yesterday, that there was law enforcement there that was armed, but the shooter was wearing um, one of those SWAT teams. Yeah, body vests. armor. Exactly, full body armor. So a tactical vest carrier. Uh, and those are the kinds of carriers that tactical teams wear. So he was protected even uh, to some extent. And one common refrain that we always hear after these mass shootings is uh, these calls for tighter U.S. gun laws and uh, the people who want their guns, who want to keep their guns and, and not have any change there, uh, they'll often say, oh, it's not it's not the guns, it's the people. It's the people who... Uh, who are not well and and did something like this. So they don't want to change the laws. Uh, but what you also start to hear after every single one of these occurrences is that other countries have made great success and strides in their gun laws to the point that they don't have mass shootings after they've they've changed these laws. So in Australia in 1996, uh, they had a, a third, it was their 13th mass shooting in 18 years. A gunman killed 35 people in Tasmania, but it was a turning point in Australia. So they changed their laws and as a result of it, a 2018 study showed that there was only one mass shooting in the following 22 years. So big change there. And then another one was uh, in Scotland yes. in March 1996. That was a really big one in Dunblane Primary School in Scotland, uh, where the gunman killed 16 children in the gymnasium. And after that, there was so many changes. It led to the snowdrop campaign. This was aimed at tightening UK gun laws and how one could obtain a handgun. And it also led to the Firearm Amendment Act of 1997. This banned high caliber handguns. And it was a campaign promise uh, that labor leader at the time, Tony Blair, went on. And they banned all handguns for personal use. And then after that, the government launched a $300 million buyback scheme, which saw the voluntary surrender of more than 160,000 firearms. The people wanted change. The government made that change happen and made it happen quickly. And since then, there have not has not been another massacre like that. Um, I'm always fascinated by Andy Murray in situations like this. And Andy Murray, the tennis player, uh, he's 35 years old. He was a survivor of the Dunblane massacre. And oh, I didn't know that. Zina. Yeah, he was a survivor of that. His mom was one of the people who helped campaign as well for the gun control uh, situation there. Uh, he was at that school when that happened, and he was just a, a little kid. He was nine years old, and he was a student at Dunblane Primary when that happened that day. Wow. And so he was talking about it too, and he just says it's madness. I mean, he used stronger words than that. But he, so he knows firsthand what it's like as a child to go through this. And he says it is absolute madness uh, that this is going on and continues to go on. And he said in a documentary recently, he said, you know, he was asked why tennis was important to him. And he said it's it, because of what happened to him at Dunblane. It was one of the ways in which he learned kind of to cope with it's one of the it's an escape for him because of all the things that he has bottled up. So all of these kids who even survive these are going through this, like we're giving them trauma by not dealing with this. Yeah. 
We're giving them trauma. We're giving their families trauma, that entire community. It was a small community actually in Texas that that this last uh, mass shooting has happened at. And unfortunately in the States, the way that they talk about gun control too, and and these mass shootings, uh, it's just, they talk about it regularly. I know. Uh, Well, we're going to get an actually update from Texas coming up next. So Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. So when we come back, yes, we will go to Uval, Texas and find out the latest on that situation right after this. This is Mornings with Simi. Children and two adults have been killed in a mass shooting at an, at an elementary school in Uval, Texas. This is the deadliest shooting at an elementary school since Sandy Hook 10 years ago. But why? How did this happen? Why did this happen? For more on that, we're joined now by Dennis Foley, who's a KTSA reporter in San Antonio. Dennis, thank you for being with us. Yeah, not a problem at all. What do we know right now about the way in which this unfolded? Like, how did this happen? What's the motivation here? Yeah, and that's partially what we're trying to still find out. Um, we're, we're getting more details, a little, uh, few more nuggets to piece things together as to what happened yesterday. Um, basically, the series of events, uh, the suspect, an 18-year-old man from Uvalde, uh, shot his grandmother, apparently some sort of argument. The grandmother we're hearing is still alive in serious condition at a San Antonio hospital. Uh, so there's a chance that she may have even more information that could really give us the insight that we're looking for. After that, he left and got into a chase, uh, apparently, probably in connection to the shooting, the first shooting, um, and crashed his truck outside his elementary school in Uvalde. He went inside, and we're learning this morning that he, all the 19 child victims and the two adults were all killed in a single classroom. Uh, from there, he got into a gun battle with police and was shot by a U.S. Border Patrol agent who had gone into the building by himself after the suspect shot at two officers and, and struck them. And that happened outside the school. So from what I understand, Dennis, there was armed law enforcement pretty much at the scene when he arrived there. Well, they were chasing him. Uh, it, was a, it was a chase. And, and the only reason why, and we still don't even know if he was targeting the elementary school. He crashed his truck as part of that chase and ran into the school. So there may have been a chance he was maybe planning to go to the high school or planning to go somewhere else and, you know, and, and have targets there. But he crashed his truck in a ditch in front of the elementary school, got out, ran into the elementary school, I think even dropping a backpack on the way in, shooting at police while he was going in. He went inside into a classroom, and that's where he shot all the, the fatalities there. Oh. Then a Border Patrol agent went in by himself without having backup and was able to fatally shoot the suspect inside the school. Oh, man. Dennis, how is the community doing this morning? Yeah, it's, it's a challenging day today. And just for context, um, Sutherland Springs, uh, so Uvalde is west of San Antonio. Sutherland Springs is about half hour, 45 minutes southeast of San Antonio. So we're talking about two high-profile mass shootings happening in our area in the past five years. Um, so there's a lot of, I mean, it's unfortunate. We, we have experts in our area that have dealt with this before, and we're reaching out to them and you know, hearing from from you know the parents of of children at the school, um, some of them still not even sure are their kids one of the victims, or, or maybe they were they sent to a hospital. Try to get information on that. So it's just uh, very much a it's a sad day in the area. 
can imagine. Are there still people in hospital as a result of this shooting still waiting to hear about that? Yeah, so roughly our understanding, and it's a little, it's a little fluid just because people were sent to multiple hospitals, some in a hospital in Uvalde, uh, and then they were sent to a couple of hospitals here in San Antonio. Um, so we're hearing roughly a dozen possibly in hospitals. Um, that number's been fluid, and even like with that grandmother, um, we're not even sure for sure if she's in serious condition or if she's dead. Mm-hmm. Still details on that we're trying to figure out. Well, we will wait for more information then. Dennis, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. As always, I love hearing from listeners out there, and I really love it when you tell me your personal story, especially if there's a connection to something that we have been talking about, like our next guest. For weeks now, we've been discussing the family doctor shortage and the crisis that has brought for so many people. I think there's something like a million British Columbians, that's the number we always hear about and use, that are without a connection to a family doctor. They don't have that relationship. And that has real concerns, significant concerns for people's health. Imagine if you're a senior, though, and this is something we talked about with BC Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie yesterday. You're a senior and you lose that family doctor and you can't get another one. What do you do then? Well, that is something our next guest had to deal with. Sue is with us now. Sue is a longtime listener to the show. Hi, Sue. Good morning, Simi. Well, thank you so much for um, joining us this morning. You, you wrote me an email and you probably didn't think you'd end up on the radio as a result of it. Uh, no, I, I just thought you might find it interesting. No, I'm quite surprised. (laughs) Okay, well, I want to hear your story. So I know your story. But Sue, tell us what happened. Why did you decide to write to me? Well, um, I guess it was about six or seven years ago, my mother's family doctor retired. And we didn't know about this until we, you know, phoned for an appointment. And oh, there was just a recording. And sorry, the office is no longer in business and the doctor is retired. So that was a shock. And my mother, um, at that point was in her late 80s and with multiple complex health issues and we were of course quite alarmed by this so we started immediately to look for a family doctor and no luck no luck whatsoever we could not find anyone and what ended up happening was um you know my mother would it it the situation escalated in the sense that she was no longer receiving um you know regular care and oversight by a doctor so we were experiencing multiple trips to, you know, walk-in clinics and the emergency rooms. And of course, you know, this is not good for the system. And what happens when you go to those places, you know, with a senior with multiple complex health issues is it's just a triage situation. You know, they're just, all the, all the emergency doctors have time to do is, all right, you know, here you go, mm-hmm. you know, here's some medication, um, off you go, you know, next, because they're so busy. And what happened to my mom was she'd often be allergic to the medication or would have very serious side effects. So then we'd be back to the emergency room again for another visit because of some drastic side effect. And this went on and on and on Mm. and on. And we could not find a doctor. Doctors, a lot of doctors are just not willing to take on senior patients. And, and then others just simply don't have the room. So we made the very difficult decision because my mother is a, a widow, she's on a fixed income, you know, she, <laughs> money is tight. We made the very difficult decision that we would look into private health care. And that ended up being the answer for us in terms of quality of care. Um, it is definitely a financial burden. It is, we've had to, you know, my mom's had to cut a lot of things. 
But the plus side is we now she now has comprehensive care in the sense that she can go in and she can spend half an hour talking to that doctor. And they've they've managed her medical situation. They've got her drugs um, consolidated so that uh, she's not just taking all sorts of these random different drugs. There's now a comprehensive drug plan, a comprehensive care plan. And honest to God, Cindy, I have to tell you that if my mother had not gotten private health care, her health was um, deteriorating so rapidly with all these medical visits that she would no longer be here now. Sue, how old is your mom now? Well, you're going to faint. She's 99. Wow. First of all, congrats to your mom. Good for (laughs) her. Um, But how difficult was this decision for you, Sue? Because, you know, we all want to think that, no, the system with all its flaws is going to look after us. So how hard was it for you to say, we are going to scrimp and save and cut back on things and we're going to go this route? Well, it, 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 it ended up being an easy decision in the sense that there was no other option. It was either my mother was going to you know, rapidly end up in, um, you know, a very bad medical situation, very poor health and and end up, you know, with her last few years of life in very poor quality of health. Or we take this bold step and we decided to take the bold step. And as I said, (sighs) private health care is really how public health care should be practiced. I mean, you have time with your doctor, you have a team, um, you know, you could call any time. Your doctor will call you and check up on you and just basic see how stuff. you're doing. Yeah, basic you stuff, know. right? Like stuff that yeah. you would like assume would happen. How much yeah. of a financial difficulty is this, though, for your mom to take this on? Well, it's tough. I mean, there's, you know, we've had to cut a lot of things. I mean, there's health repairs that need to be done. Um, just as an example, you know, the roof. <laughs> just as an example, you know, with the heat dome last year, we, we had a you know, it was a very difficult time, and, and my mom's house is a very sort of old house, and there's no air conditioning, and we really need to put in some kind of air conditioning, but that isn't in the budget. Like, we can't do it. Right. So, Sue, what would be your message then to politicians, to the health minister, to the premier, about this whole situation? Well, I think you need to look, they need to look at the private model, and, I, and I've heard talk of this in the sense that, you know, putting in teams and it, it's this billing system, you know, every, you know, you get 10 minutes with a doctor and then you're gone. Doctors need, we need more family doctors, obviously, and that's a big message I think the politicians are hearing loud and clear. We need many more family doctors, but we also need more supports for family doctors. Again, I think I've heard this on your show, so I'm just repeating it. More support for family doctors to practice the kind of medicine that they need to practice, because I totally understand why doctors go into private medicine, because that's the good way to practice yeah. family medicine. Well, Sue, listen, so, thank you for, ahead. yeah, thanks for being with us this morning and for telling your story. And listen, can you tell your mom we say hi? I will. Okay, She's thanks. still in bed, but I'll, I'll pass on the message. <laughs> well, she deserves to sleep in, absolutely. Yes, pass along the message. And Sue, thank you again for joining us. We appreciate that. Sue's a longtime listener to the show, talking about the difficult, well, turns out to be not so difficult, had to be done, decision made to pay for family doctor access. Is that something that you would do? Is that something you can even afford to do? You'd like to think we didn't have to, right? But you can talk to me about that, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Lots of talk about Stanley Park these days, right? And how to deal with the growing demands to use it. But what about that other Vancouver tourist attraction? For instance, Granville Island. It's a local jewel, but also a big tourist destination. So what is its future? Well, that's something that is under consideration right now. And somebody who's written about that is our next guest, Frances Bula, urban affairs contributor to The Globe and Mail. You could check out her latest piece on this topic in The Globe and Mail newspaper. Good morning, Frances. Hi, Sumi. Well, let's talk about this. So what is going on? What is this discussion about with Gravel Island? So um, there's, uh, for a long time, when the federal conservatives were in power, Granville Island um, sort of was coasting along with, you know, fairly bureaucratic management. Um, There was talk of, at one point, um, shifting it over to um, the control of Ports Canada, (laughs) Uh, and so on. And then it kind of disappeared. When the Liberals came in, um, in part thanks to Hetty Fry, the MP for the West End, um, there was a whole new like sort of visioning process. What do we want Granville Island to become? That took a few years. Um, They hired a new manager for the island, Tom Lancaster, in October 2020. And there's this mission to kind of uh, revive, the, not revive, it's not dead, but, uh, you know, add like to revitalize, ex- revitalize, expand, um, you know, add more quirky elements. And then there's been some big changes um, that have prompted that or have come about in the middle. One was Emily Carr left with a lot of students. Um, there have been some, uh, you know, replacements for that. Ballet BC just recently came in, but, um, you know, that was a big chunk of, of young people who used to come to the island. Um, there, um, the, the Bridges restaurant changed hands. Um, it went to the nephew of one of the original founders, and he happens to be the director of Tap and Barrel, the Tap and Barrel change. And some people didn't like that sort of corporate thing. Um, and um, there's a few other empty spots on the island, one where Isadora's and a Brown's used to be, one just, you know, kind of an empty parking lot. And so there's big questions about <clears throat> how are we going to keep what everybody loves? And people are very attached to Granville Island. I don't know if you've ever seen what happens when anyone tries to make a change, but all hell breaks loose. Yes, so true. <laughs> uh, so they, you know, keep what everyone loves, but continue adding to it. Uh, in the mandate of Granville Island, which is, you know, to be not corporate, not chained, uh, to, to focus on local artists, uh, but also have some money making ventures that are, but that are, aren't corporate. So it's quite a balancing act. Right. Okay. So is there a process that this is going to go through to make this happen? Because I would imagine there's a lot of people who kind of like Granville Island just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, there was a process already. And what this new manager is supposed to be doing is kind of trying to help make uh, some of these changes. And a new kind of residence council also got established in the last few years. So they're doing things like vetting new people who might come in and also trying to solicit people who might want to invest in Granville Island. Because the big problem for Granville Island is actually money. Um, It's owned and managed by the federal government. And the premise has always been that you can't reserve any money, you can't build up sort of a capital fund for repairs or anything. You um, can only charge enough rent to, uh, to cover your costs and, 
and that's it. It has to be break even. So they don't have a big fund for repairing things. And um, either some money is going to have to come from the federal government or they're going to have to find private partners or both. And that's going to be the next big decision for Granville Island. Right. Private partners, Granville Island. Ooh, this sounds like a classic <laughs> Vancouver battle in the making, Francis. Mm-hmm. So what are the next and steps? Uh, well, uh, the next steps will be they'll they'll be announcing some new tenants uh, moving in, but that's not big. There's a, a serious discussion of expanding the food market, like you know the 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 market part right. of, of Granville Island, because of course it's a pretty big place that has three theaters and you know uh, several dozen artists' shops and bookstores and a hotel and all kinds of things. But so expand that market. Um, find some new tenants for some of the areas, but the really the next big thing will be figuring out what to do with that empty Emily Carr building, the chart where the Charles Scott Gallery was on the north side. Uh, that's what everyone's waiting for is is some kind of movement on that. There, there seems to be that whole area though is under discussion, isn't it? Because I know the city of Vancouver is also talking about that entire kind of false Creek situation. The federal government is involved in this. It just feels like Vancouver's at a bit of a crossroads, doesn't it? Well, it is in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of change happening right now with all the talk of, you know, various big um, pieces of land being built out, Jericho, um, Broadway commercial towers, Broadway plan, Vancouver plan, Heatherlands plan. Yes. Like, um, it does feel like Vancouver is in the middle of a pretty significant kind of generational change. And yes, and Vancouver or uh, Granville Island is part of it. And I, I think what you're talking about in Falls Creek is like they're trying to figure out how to deal with sea change. Yes. And possibly altering like the height of the seawalls or changing the seawalls into something different that water can wash over and then retreat from. Yeah. And so, all the leases that are coming up too, right? Because those that's all leased land there and what to do with all of that. So I just, it's hard. You you cover all these meetings, Francis, and sometimes I don't know how you do it because they must right. be frustrating. Don't cover them all. Well, <laughs> I mean, they're frustrating. They're also fascinating stories about who lives in Vancouver and who cares about it. And I've seen just enormous change uh, in the kinds of people who come out to meetings um, uh, in Vancouver to express their opinions on what should happen. Um, there's in a what level way? of it. Uh, well, I mean, you're just you just see a lot more young people who are out saying we want change, we want housing. Um, uh, it used to be primarily homeowners who would come out to object to the latest. Um, you know, building right. that was being proposed or the latest mega project. Uh, and now you see a lot of renters, you see a lot of young people who feel they're shut out of the city. Um, there's just a different kind of activism. And, you know, and also many people have been mobilized because they feel like the city is changing in ways that they don't like. Um, and so uh, there's just a lot of interest these days in the big changes being proposed. Um, people don't get to weigh in on Granville Island too much no, they <laughs> as don't. part of that. But, you know, <laughs> speaking of de new developments, one thing that Granville Island is counting on or hoping, really hoping happens is the big Sinoc development, the Musqueam development by the Burrard Bridge. Right. Because that would bring 10,000 people into that immediate vicinity. And they're talking about a streetcar possibly running 
uh, from Sanok uh, to, you know, somewhere near downtown, and that could bring people to Granville Island. So that's something Granville Island's really looking at is different ways that people might get there, including the streetcar, including a new bike bridge, including, you know, better ways to walk. So this is all fascinating stuff. Francis, thank you for joining us this morning. Yes, and I think I'm going to go shopping there now for groceries. You should. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I love that. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. That's Francis Bula, Urban Affairs contributor to Globe and Mail newspaper. Check out her latest piece writing about Granville Island and the future of it. If you don't go occasionally grocery shopping there, oh, it's fantastic. I cannot tell you enough. When you need that one ingredient that you can't find anywhere else, that's where you're actually going to find it. So the future of that and all these other big projects, it certainly does feel like the city is at a crossroads. And weigh in with your thoughts on that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, new home buyers are definitely facing some pretty dramatic increases in mortgage rates these days. So does that jump mean that you should play the waiting game if you're trying to get into the market? Should you try to let the market settle or do you jump in now because maybe things are going to get worse? I mean, these are just some of the issues that potential home buyers are having to grapple with. Joining us now to talk more about that is our contributor, Raji Silhal. Morning, Raji. Hey, Simi. Yeah, I haven't been seeing much housing available for sale in my neighborhood. Nothing really in my neck of the woods for months. And then suddenly in like the last 10 days, I've seen places pop up and they sold immediately. And what was really interesting to me was the listing prices. Uh, They were definitely lower than they would have been, say, last fall. Um, And we know that the prices were just insane over the pandemic. And then now there's this kind of plateau, a little bit of a dip with those housing prices. Again, I don't know what they actually ended up selling for, whether there was a bidding war. Um, So I'm guessing that some people who were able to nab those houses, uh, they, they went in very ready. But a lot of people who are looking to upgrade to owning a home are looking around right now going, well, what do I do? Because these houses are dipping slightly in prices, but as you mentioned earlier, interest rates are rising, rising dramatically, expected to go up even more. And so I asked Raphael Ambrosovich, he's a financial planner with Blue Shore. He really sympathizes with folks in that situation. They're trying to get in. They may be able to come up with a bare minimum 5% down payment and have the mortgage CMHC insured. If individuals have means to come up with that bare minimum down payment, I personally believe that getting into real estate now as opposed to later will be better for them. I think it's more affordable now than it will be in the future. You know, Vancouver is one of the greatest examples in history that, yes, there have been dips, you know, 10, 15, 20%. Uh, but that rarely allowed people to just really take advantage of it outside just realizing the equity. Um, there are creative ways in which individuals can get to the market. And some people get an early inheritance from the parents. Uh, right now, you can partner yourself with the government and pull additional money towards the down payment, and you just have to share the, the growth eventually. RSP is, is a you know, good instrument, tax-free savings account, you know, when I looked at it from a budgetary perspective, you know, what it costs to rent one or two bedroom apartment, it's pretty much just about the same thing that it will cost for the millennials to be able to pay the mortgage. Down payment is the key issue. But with CMHC offering 
mortgages with as little as 5% down payment. You know, as an example, when I first got into the market, I went through CMHC up with 5% down payment. The following year, I had a negative equity, but it did not impact me. I bought it, the place. I was the owner of it. I was a private owner. I was able to live for a number of years. And again, as an example, real estate went up. I sold and upsized it. So if there is a mean to come up with a 5%, I encourage to do that right now as opposed to later. So interesting there, Simi, because he's saying that basically if you can scrap it, scrape it together, just all these little pieces of the picture and get that funding together for your first down payment to make it happen, because I mean, he's suggesting there, predicting there that things are only going to get way worse. And I have seen people in my community look at this uh, situation with the housing market and actually do the opposite. A, A lot of friends that I know that have wanted to buy and actually had the down payment didn't go for it because they said, well, I I think I should wait. I think things might change drastically in my favor in the future. Of course, no one has a crystal ball, but uh, that is the predicament that younger first-time home buyers are finding themselves in. Uh, I would encourage every individual that is considering to do a large expenditure, whatever they deem to be a large expenditure, to sit down and look at the numbers. And also budget from perspective, you know, know your discretionary income, know your uh, fixed expenditures, how much is coming in. I know this is old saying that, you know, people often plan or budget more for holidays as opposed to how they're going to be spending, you know, day to day for expenses. Inflation, as we know, it's a real number and it's impacting bottom line for everybody else, including me. I preach the budget. It's, it's the fundamental tool that we can share with our clients and kind of position them for success. Boy, that is such a tough one though, Raji, because you know, I think people just look at what they can pay and they don't really look at what they might have to pay a couple of years from now when interest rates go up. And that's always been, I think, a fundamental problem with the housing market. Yeah. And then when you break it down in terms of monthly payments and how much more your budget is going to have to be adjusted for uh, an increase in your mortgage rate, well, um, I mean, that's really, it's a, it's a hard thing for people to put into context. Even with the numbers in front of them, people also set their eyes on a dream and a goal of home ownership without thinking about the nitty gritty details. But I've also seen how so many people have benefited in the last couple of years because they bought uh, just at the beginning of the pandemic and then they've sold recently and then now they have uh, this chunk, this extra chunk. That Those people though also, I would say, Simi, have had a difficult time at repurchasing because although they have benefited from Mm -hmm. uh, selling at a good time, now it's not a great, it's not a great time to buy either. Also, I think even for existing uh, homeowners, this is becoming an issue because I understand they're also thinking about kind of cracking down on the home equity lines of credit that so many people have. So if you were actually kind of taking advantage as well of the equity in your home, that's something that also might be coming to an end because, you know, banks have been only too happy to lend out money based on the equity in your home. And now that might change. 
Yeah. So the the home equity loan program is is a really interesting one, and for people who've who've been able to leverage it, um, like actually this uh, financial planner I was talking to told me that some people have gotten it in order to do major renos and then turned around and sold their home. Now that's really interesting use of it because they really made it work for them. Uh, other people have used it for other big purchases and maybe they enjoyed the heck out of those purchases, but they didn't gain anything uh, from it in terms of increasing their investment. Uh, one thing that was pointed out to me though, that in periods of, inf- of inflation, of possible recession, is that people really need to look at their budget, sit mm-hmm. down, re-crunch all the numbers again, and look at what is practical and what you do need to do in order to optimize your investments. Makes sense. And that point he said about people understanding their travel budget so much better than their you know, otherwise uh, life budgets. <laughs> I thought was really interesting. Everyone knows how much they paid for a plane ticket or a train ticket or what to uh, exactly right? spending on a trip uh, on a daily basis. But in general, people don't look at, hey, how much am I spending on my grocery right. bill? And, and should I be adjusting that since prices are changing so much? Oh, that is so true. It's hard to keep track these days because prices are changing so much too. Uh, Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there talking about deciding whether or not to get into the housing market right now because it is fluctuating so much with these interest rates that seem to be going up, up, and up, and it's impacting everybody's budget, right? Found a way in, Simi at cknw.ca.